Yeah, Terry. Well, yeah. <laughs> here's what I'm thinking as a torture artist who really is so has a deep man's voice because I've lived a lot of life now, and I'll tell you. Yeah, what did it's he all refer about. to his poetry at any point? Did he <laughs> talk about his readings that are coming up? I got to hear about what it was like to descend into Orlando with a plane full of people from the. Well, you know, I expected our international flight to Orlando to be filled with people um, and kids with Mickey Mouse ears and clapping and cheering and all that. And what's amazing is um, it wasn't. We, we were kind of the only, I felt like we were the only Disney goers in our area. Um, it was really kind of quiet. And that was the case up until we got the Disney Magical Express, um, which is a, a bus, a coach. Uh, into the Magic Kingdom, and then things just went off the rails, crazy Disney um, experience. And for seven days, we were inside the Magic Kingdom at the uh, at one of the hotels that's connected by a monorail to the Magic Kingdom itself. And we would wake up at 6 a.m. every morning to be able to get to the park by 6.30 before the mad crowds come, because, man, that place is crazy after about 11 a.m., and my daughter got to meet all the princesses, Elsa and Anna and Cinderella and Rapunzel and Tinkerbell, her all-time favorite. Wow. Um, but I couldn't tell if she her. believed... Yeah, I couldn't, be, I couldn't tell if she believed they were the actual ones or just they were dressed up as the actual ones. Um, but, you know, I, as much as I hated and don't like Disney World, seeing it through her eyes made it all worthwhile. In that way, so it was really actually kind of fun, and I mean the week was was good. Um, you know, the the best part is catching up with family and um, you know trying to get some trying to relax here and there. And um, when I'm on holiday, I try to bring books. I always seem to go back to two types of books when I'm on holiday. It's kind of funny. Um, I did it again this time. Stuff that helps me just totally switch off, and it's stuff I guess that I've always liked since childhood in a way. And there's always new books out on these two subjects, so I'm always I always have new books to get. One is baseball, so I always like to get a baseball book. So I got a book called 1964, which was about the um, the pennant race and World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and New York Yankees in 1964, and just just devoured that. And the other kind of weird subject that I always go back to, and any new book that comes out, I always like to get. It's kind of weird is stuff on the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> so I bought a new book, because, you know, 19, um, well, when he was assassinated in 63, uh, in 2013, all these books came out, and I couldn't get to, to many of them, um, because I think it was, what, the 50-year anniversary. So, of course, there was lots of books, and I'm a huge, you know, conspiracy theorist type. Uh, so, yeah, it's one subject that just I can't I, I can't get away from. Absolutely love. So I read a great book on the Kennedy assassination. Still convinced what's, Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone. <laughs> what's the new? Okay, so rewind just one second. Is that <clears throat> I think I talked over you there, but all those books came out in 2013, and I heard other conspiracy theorists kind of talking about um, all the new work that had come out, you know, like a year and a half ago. And it pushing lifelong conspiracy theorists to say, and I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Really? The only book that that, well, there's two books that probably referred to, and one's by this guy, Vincent Bugliosi, who was yeah. a, a trial lawyer. 
and it's called something like Case Closed or something. Wait, like he that. just wrote another one? No, no, it's. I think he's updated it for 2013. And there's another okay. book by a guy named Posner, Posner or Posner, mm-hmm. um, which is another lone assassin book. Um, but both of those books, you know, they kind of take you through all the steps and how he could have done it. But it's so, you know, to a thinking person, I'm sorry, it's just too. It's too impossible to believe. It's yeah. almost much more fiction. The um, the lone uh, assassin stuff, and I wouldn't doubt that a few kind of lifelong conspiracy theorists would shift, but there would be nothing in those books that would convince me because I, I, you know. <laughs> so I'm what, sure what particular was... brand of the conspiracy do you find yourself most aligned well, with? Well, it's funny because there's so many brands. That's a good way to describe it. And this last book I read, because each time I read a book, I'm like, oh, yeah, it was definitely the CIA or, oh, it was antro, uh, anti-Castro-Cuban um, uh, exiles or it was... Um, kind of uh, what crazy wings of of the uh, Dallas Communist Party this time I was reading a great piece on the mafia and I'm starting to think it's the mafia now um, and uh, there was a couple of different mafia dons at the time um, Traficanti and Marcello and those guys and they all had really good good um, good reasons to do it all basically had been recorded before the assassination saying they were working on a plan to uh, to get rid of Kennedy. And you can't, you know, for me, it's always been the Jack Ruby thing. It's always been the, um, the keystone to the case. He's all mob. And, you know, he was, he's been cited visiting Traficanti and Marcello in the past. And, he, you know, he's been seen with Lee Harvey Oswald in the past. It's just too, it's too convenient. So, yeah, I'm, I'm swaying back to the good old uh, Italian-American mob, I think. So that mob. mafia connection is also like a New Orleans connection, right? It is a big New Orleans connection. A lot of people like, think that yeah. the real watershed moment is the summer before the assassination in New Orleans um, when Lee Harvey Oswald is or founded the New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and was handing out leaflets on Canal Street um, and basically showing off that he was uh, a, a big communist and big pro-Castro person um, and then kind of went silent, went back to Dallas, uh, magically got this job at the Texas School Book Depository, and uh, the rest is history. So yeah, New Orleans is big because that's where all of the, there's the anti-Castro Cuban exile community, the FBI, the ONI, which is the Office of Naval Intelligence, the CIA, all of those guys have offices right next to, literally within walking distance of where Oswald's office was. So it's kind of, it's all, it's all too spooky. The best part about the Oswald thing is that let's say he did act alone it is the most muddled, confused, tangled script, so rife for people to think about from a conspiracy angle. It, you couldn't write something more better tailored to a conspiracy angle. Like just going back to his time in Moscow and like how he got kicked out of Russia as like a pro-communist sympathizer in what, the 50s? The, uh, Oswald, yeah. Yeah, you were saying that the thing about the Oswald thing is it was rife with something, and I was really interested to hear what you were saying, actually. You, okay, so basically you could not create a person with a backstory like Oswald's that's as riddled with potentialities for conspiracy. Like, he is beyond fiction's capability to come up with a perfect candidate for 
a conspiracy theory. It's ridiculous. Like, to have a character like Oswald who goes and lives in Moscow as a pro-communist sympathizer and is so yeah. wacko that he even gets kicked out of Russia, you can't write a character like that who had all these connections and brushes with people who may have had bigger motives and probably did. Um, the Jack Ruby thing is super fascinating. I love thinking about how the Jack Ruby thing intersects with the history of photography. Oh, that's interesting. <clears throat> Just the picture of him getting shot by Oswald becoming this iconic... It's an iconic photograph. It's it's up there with maybe top 25 of the 20th century, maybe? I've seen the video of it, but I don't think... So the photo, is there a photographer who captured one photo in particular? Yeah, I believe he was working for one of the Dallas papers, and I wish I had the, his name on the tip of my tongue. I tried to think about it, but he captures um, he captured it as Oswald's darting out of the crowd, kind of being led by the muzzle of his gun, very forceful, as if he has a bay as if he has a small knife and is kind of lunging at Ruby, and it's right as the muzzle goes off. And you've got Ruby, I think, is already reacting and grimacing. No, you know oh, what? I've Oswald got this is, totally yeah. backwards. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Oswald is. Oswald yeah, is yeah, grimacing. I see that yeah, photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When the guy with the white hat has this, oh, shit, look on his face. Gotta love yeah. the guy in the white hat. There are other people in the photo who have yet to kind of react to the situation in their faces, which is this amazing thing that can happen in photography that it captures such a thin slice that it reveals who's who's actually on the same page at the same time, right? Like yeah, maybe yeah. they're seeing it, but their bodies haven't been able to move to do anything about it. Or um, I guess you could write about a conspiracy contained within that photograph. Like, why isn't anybody helping Oswald? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but in the video... That video is so amazing, too, because it's black and white, right, for yeah. um, TV. But it has an almost three-dimensional quality to it. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, because the, there's something about the black and white photos or the videos at that time. that had, yeah, a weird kind of almost a, a haze or a, a glow around the figures, didn't they? Yeah, there's this weird kind of ghosting thing. And it, 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 it may have something to do with the artificial light. That was what like downstairs going into a garage at the police yeah. station like they're bringing yeah, him out, out. Yeah. and uh there's something so like you see yeah right it's a little ghosty like you see people walking around in the background it's so divorced from that's so funny because that kind of black and white tv broadcast and the and the the let's say primitive technology behind it is so far removed from how it actually looked, you know, but it's how it will always look to us. Like yeah, you, yeah. It's so interesting how it's it's just like a translation from uh, from uh, English to French to Portuguese to Italian back to English. It's like here's what yeah, happened. Good way to describe it, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I'm seeing. I'm sorry. I'm looking at that photo now, and yeah, it's a great photo. Actually, it's just got so much expression on everybody's faces. It's um, that's an amazing that's just, picture. Yeah, and, and it people, really is. people uh, there's something where, oh well, if you were to Google that image, you would 
see people who've put, I think, a guitar in um, Oswald's hands, and it like is the perfect kind of rock picture. Like if you oh, cut and pasted God. a guitar on him, yeah, he's yeah, like grimacing, and it looks like the guy's running up. Ruby's running up to him with a microphone. <laughs> oh, I see that actually, and the guy in the white hat is playing keyboards. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> oh, that is fantastic! Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that mean, is perfect. I, I think this guy Eddie Adams, who was in Vietnam, he he's the guy who photographed the street side execution, uh, which you remember of the revolver being pointed against the man's head and him getting blown away. And that's a crazy uh, bit of photography too that also had a live, not a live TV camera, but a TV camera recording it. Or maybe it was even a movie camera in Vietnam. And it's interesting to see both of those have to do with, let's say, an execution of a person. Both still photographs are incredible. And then both have this kind of um, further documentation from from moving uh, pictures, you know, from a TV Mm -hmm. and then from a film camera in the Eddie Adams picture that's funny i never thought about that how similar they are and they probably occurred within like yeah so the, of each other or something yeah know. that would be what 67 or something like that in vietnam i i don't know if that vietnam thing was late in the game as people were starting to pull out and traitors were getting executed because he's a he's a vietnamese soldier who's getting executed uh, yeah i need to look into that that's that's fun some fun sunday reading right yeah, I mean, I guess uh, you, you were naming what were that you felt this fell into what the top ten or fifteen. Um, what what are some of the other photos that you think would be the, the you know that I, I was obviously just the D Day photos and yeah, I'm thinking about photojournalism. So Robert Capa's stuff from D Day. There, there's a frame or two from there that are totally amazing. The picture that someone made on a 4x5, I believe it was a 4x5, like a huge negative of the Hindenburg exploding. Oh, that, wow. That would be one. That was like in New Jersey. <clears throat> um, so just those moments. That The Eisenstadt, I think Alfred Eisenstadt was the, was the photographer who took a picture of the sailor coming home from war in new york and uh engaged in the kiss of the woman in the middle of the street in new york oh yeah of course yeah 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 that's pretty huge like it's funny to think like okay that's my world i understand photography and have been around it for a while and it's kind of the language that i speak all the time (laughs) at work and at home um and but what would those pictures be to somebody who isn't in that world you know, like, hey, somebody, you know, what are the top 20 pictures of the 20th century to you? It'd be funny to, funny to know. And even now, like, people's image facilities have so ramped up. And that's, that's kind of the language everyone speaks now. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, actually. And it's interesting that everybody would have, well, different responses. Um, you know, that there would be... Well, I mean, I, I would have to really sit down and think about that for mine. Um, and I don't know if it would be photojournalism or if it would be, you know, I would probably think more um, uh, conflict photography. I guess it's just different by the different types of people, I suppose. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, do you have a favorite photo just from whenever, wherever? Do you have a favorite picture in your mind? No, but I really like pictures of Bob Dylan in the 60s. There's not any no that shit. I dislike. You know what yeah, I mean? He was no so shit. photogenic, wasn't he? Oh, my God. And sometimes, God. do you still come across, like, sometimes I'll still come across some random black and white of him yes. from early 60s. I don't know where they keep uncovering these, but they just seem to come out every now and again. Yeah. Um, and they're all so good, you know? He's yeah. so photogenic. Yeah, he really is. He's like, um, I was going to say, he's 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 kind of like a sorcerer. I mean, <laughs> it's like, whenever I see a picture, a vintage picture of Dylan, I'm like, oh, is this post-Big Pink, pre-Nashville Skyline? Like, I'm always trying, is this... Post blood on the tracks, you know, like pre whatever. (laughs) Is this before he went electric? You know, I'm always trying to figure it out. And you kind of can. Like, you know, he had a developing look that developed, was much, that had its own album list alongside his growing discography, right? Like, yeah, that's true. That's true. He 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 was a different persona. God, it's so amazing. God, and, and, and of course, that's what Todd Haynes hooked into with I'm Not There, but yeah. it's funny to think about that um, there is this special quality. Uh, it's so weird to talk about a human or an artist this way. Like, it's so photographically fascinating. Even now, like, pictures of him now, his face looks scrambled to me. And it's just like, you know, people get old and their face may not cohere in the same way that it once did. But it like it looks like um, it looks like a garbled trans you know not to use the word transcription again but something got garbled coming through the wires on its way to me I'm like wow like this is him now like it's hard to square it with uh, youth virility and power and just like <laughs> gosh that's but crazy. his eyes I noticed that the more recent photos his eyes his are eyes. still very much the same you know what uh, I mean like you could still yeah. see him in in the eyes and I just realized last week because I just saw it on Amazon or something he's coming out with a new album in a few weeks is this this album of Frank Sinatra songs oh god I hope not that I hope that's not what it is I thought it was new new material Dude, I think you I think you gotta beware on that one. I think it's Frank oh, Sinatra tunes. No, you're kidding. <laughs> I no, I'm not. Um, yeah, yeah, it's called Shadows in the Night. Um, that's that the Frank does, Sinatra that's stuff. That's ominous already. Um, there has been this European release of stuff to uh extend the copyright of it in Europe. Um I haven't seen it, but I think it's out. It's something to look at. He it, it would be the second release. They did one like it like a year or two ago. Uh, it's so oh, funny yes. how much of my life is totally run by vague information. Like, yeah, well. Even this podcast, dude. Like, even our conversations. Like, I act like I know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, there was a release of um, stuff, and it's to extend a copyright in Europe. And, like, do I know any specifics? Like, well, what kind of material? Well, what is it called? Like, yeah, but having the high level is not a bad thing. There's right. nothing wrong that's, with that. That's all for the Google to know. Like, I don't need that's to prove right. myself that I know all the details <laughs> when the, I know exactly where to find right. the details. <laughs> well, and would you, would you, I would in fact argue that these days it's difficult to, to have a deep level knowledge of, of anything, really. It's, it's all high level of tons of stuff. Right. I mean, that's, that's our generation, sadly. <laughs> that's what the, uh, the web has done to us. So I'm going deep level on something. Go for it. Um, 
No, just in general, like I'm trying to acquire a deep level of knowledge about something and it's kind of new. It's in the last like month and a half. And I think the last time we talked, we talked about how I was getting back into brewing again. But since then, I've gotten completely into this idea of, um, so you know how, do they have the word locavore or like, what's the word for farm to table cuisine in the UK? Is there such a thing? Oh, no, I think it yeah, farm to table, I suppose, or, or right. yeah, um, real slow food, maybe real food. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of the catchphrase. Uh, so anyways, yeah. like so much of culture, especially food culture, is, is about more authenticity, more local, more um, this meal happens from these ingredients that were found in this particular place at this particular time, right? Right. So that's going down that rabbit hole of, you know, let's say hipster inspired authenticity. And that might be, that might not be true, but that's what it feels like sometimes. So there are a few breweries in America of the 3000 plus now that exist. There are probably only 20 of them that are really starting up with this. So it's still a new idea, which is why I'm spending a lot of time researching it and actually like trying Try experimenting it. I'm trying to put this into practice. So it's this kind of legendary technique of brewing from Belgium that they've been doing for you know hundreds and hundreds of years that hasn't really changed in the last 200 years. Which is once you boil your wort and you get it all together, you pump you pump it into a flat, um, open fermenter, much like they had at Anchor, which you've seen, yeah. and it's called a cool ship. And it's where the beer cools. And in, in this certain region, legend goes, in this certain region of Belgium, they could open the windows and the wild yeasts from the farmland would come in and start to spontaneously ferment the beer. So it's essentially it's this idea of spontaneously fermented beer. And that's a traditional style of brewing in Belgium, which yields goose, you know, goose and lambiques and stuff. Um and it's just not here in America, and people aren't doing it. And I think it is like an, a complete new world of brewing that mm. is can totally be tapped. So here are a couple of stupid examples of it that I've been fascinated by and thinking a lot about. Is let's say you got two people who are getting married, um, and it's like you could brew a batch for their wedding with yeast that was harvested at the place where they got engaged. Oh, gosh. I see what you're saying. Wow. Right? Yeah, okay. (laughs) So it's this completely unique brew. And so it flies in the face of everything that brewing is about, which is consistency, repeatability. I guess those two things are the same. Like high level of predictability. Like we know exactly what this thing's going to taste like. So... Making spontaneously fermented beers has nothing to do with that. And so there are a few places in America who are really committing to it. One's out of Austin, actually, called Jester King. And uh, they're doing stuff like that. There's a place in Connecticut. Um, Allagash in Maine has a cool ship, and they're experimenting with it. Um, So mainly these, like, super successful Belgian-inspired places are branching out into it. But here's what I'm actually thinking about on a much smaller local scale is could you become a kind of neighborhood nano brewery 
brewery that specializes in spontaneously fermented beer, often made for on commission for yeah. special occasions, where it's it's a total artisan thing. It's not, you know, breweries aren't necessarily seen as like art people making art or artisans, the, though the best ones I would say are definitely making a kind of magic, uh, a repeatable odd kind of magic, but... Yeah, I'm totally thinking about it, and um, so I'm trying to do it here. I'm cultivating. So how 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 would you do it in a small scale? <laughs> so the small scale is kind of fun. You basically brew this wort up, uh, and you kind of have samples of it and sterile samples that you would leave outside in particular locations overnight to get inoculated by whatever's traveling in the air, and then you bring them back, and you kind of watch them over the next few days and see what starts to happen. So what can happen is E. coli and, oh, right. and uh, pathogens can can come into the wort. They will disappear once the thing starts fermenting and the pH drops and the alcohol increases. These are some things that I never knew until like a couple of weeks ago. Um and then the sample can become like testable. You can drink it. You can. So you would say, "All right, well, what's this one about? Oh, it's giving me some like banana like aroma, and it tastes like honey. You know, like okay, well, let's mark that, and we can isolate that yeast, and so that we can repitch it up into a bigger batch and see how that does, and then repitch it again and." Um, maybe it's ready for a real beer, and we can make a real beer that will kind of have these qualities. So it's pure experimentation. And, um, yeah, I'm, like, considering getting a microscope and, like, I'm Really? I'm whoa, like, whoa, whoa. You're yeah. going to get a microscope? So, wow. So, you, so I love it. I, what? Ho- I totally love this idea, and I'm I'm really excited. It's so funny. It 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 puts the art and magic into brewing in a way that I've always wanted it there. And it's funny when I was getting into beer in the late eighties and starting when I interned at a few breweries in the early nineties and was thinking about a career in it, I realized that like it, it just didn't have the magic component and the magic, we saw a little bit of that 15 years ago when we were in Belgium. And I definitely saw it when I, I don't think you were with me, but I was in Brussels and went to this place. Uh, it depends on how you pronounce it, Cantillon. And uh, they're kind of the foremost, world's best example practitioner of exactly what I'm talking about. Of goose, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Cantillon. Wow. So, th- uh, sorry, can we go back to the microscope for a second? <laughs> yeah. So, tell me what you do with that. Are you going to, like, deal, you're going to... You're going to investigate strains of yeast, I suppose, yes. closely? Yes. And do what with it? Would you isolate them? Would yes, you... mainly for isolating because huh. I don't know anything else. I don't know any other science. I have a friend in Portland, close friend, who um, he he can be a little bit of a science. I can lean on him for some science when I really need it. But, yeah, it essentially it would allow me to isolate specific strains and then grow them up. Uh, out of isolation, so you know that you've just isolated one thing that you're that you're growing up one thing rather than growing up a hybrid of six different things. And let's say five of those things are good, but the sixth thing is bad, right? Right. So you do want to be able to isolate stuff at some point. Um, 
So yeah, I'm like looking at. I think I might be ordering some agar, you know, like agar plates. Like oh meat, my god, meat. like I used to use in <laughs> biology class. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like a petri little agar. Uh, yeah, dish. I'm gonna have some wow. petri dishes and. Um, How are you gonna know when you get something you like? Are, are you? Do you have to isolate a few yeast, go through a full brew? No, it no, it's decide? just these little small samples. Samples, like let's say, a ma- like oddly enough, it's a mason jar. Um, so kind of a mason jar size, like you know, six to twelve ounce uh, sample size. That's you kind of treat it as a full brew. Uh, that little sample, like okay, uh, air. What are you going to bring in here? Oh, you brought something in here oh you brought in some lactobacillus and this thing's souring nicely okay so is this going to continue to ferment um is there some Britannomyces in here as well so the the funny thing is there's this yeast called Britannomyces, which belgian breweries have been using forever in, in particular the, the most famous example is orval and oh, that yeah. kind of leathery, horsey, barnyard type character. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Orval. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like it. It's not one of my favorites. Oh, I've loved it for so long, and I I just I bought a I, <laughs> I just bought a bottle of it yesterday. It's like the first one in ten years that I bought. So I'm it's got yeah. that wacky silver fish on it. Yeah, bending uh, around. Yeah, right. So, but here's the crazy part is. All brewers in America who brew ales use this yeast called Saccharomyces, and genetically it's fairly limited as to what Saccharomyces can do. Like, oh, it can ferment a beer and have these, give these fruity esters, and there's some variation. Let's say a hundred different variations there, and I'm not sure if I'm correct on that. But Bertanomyces is genetically way more complex, and it has, I think, thousands of different variations. So it's like way more distinct and different than regular beer, uh, regular right. brewer's yeast. But it, it it itself is a brewer's yeast. So you can use it in our vol, and it, it, it yields these kind of like sweaty, like uh, <laughs> urine in hay kind of oh. <laughs> aromas and flavors. Not to not to get it too out there. <laughs> But like horse piss on hay. That's, that's right. Yes. Is. No. That's pretty. Specific. That's a particular kind of aroma, right? Um, but it could in another beer and another kind of uh, strain of Britannomyces, it will yield a beer that totally tastes like pineapples and has absolutely no fruit in it whatsoever. So yeah. it's so people are only just starting to mess around with it and people are actually really the breweries that are messing around with it they're kind of only messing with two strains of it and there's tons of it and it's in the air it's on your skin right now <laughs> Britannomyces right. is so it's it's everywhere and uh so i'm i'm kind of hoping that i just get lucky with some of these samples and it's like holy shit this is going to taste great so are you going to make, I mean, I remember I did a tour of a brewery here in England, um, I forget one, Oakham Brewery maybe, but years ago, and they, they have an area where they store their yeast, because it's very valuable, like to store it, because they want to make sure that, as you say, it's repeatable, so they almost they almost put it behind lock and key, one sample of it, because that's, that's their formula. So if you stumble upon something, or do you have a backup or something that you can? Are you gonna like? Yeah, it's super great. Like copious it's, notes. Or? Yeah, it's really digital that way. Like you can back up a yeast. 
<laughs> How? Like, what do you mean? Like, what you the steps you went through to produce it? Yeah. So, I I'm, in describing it earlier, I might have talked about kind of growing it up into different size batches. So, you can start with one cell. Oh, I see. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and you can you can grow it up. It just multiplies in wort. And then you have a little bit more. And then you, you take take that and you pitch it up into a larger sample. And then you take that and pitch it up into a larger sample. And let's say three generations down the line, then you're able to ferment, let's say, five gallons of beer, three or four, probably from a cell. So, and often the more yeast you pitch, the kind of better things are, the healthier the yeast can be. And, um, wow. But you're totally right in terms of breweries. Here's what I've realized. It's funny. It took me... 25 years of investigating beer to figure this out or to realize it on a deep level, I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) It's really not about your recipe. It is a little bit about your technique in terms of how things are going to taste. It's really, this is a yeast game. Like, this whole thing is a yeast game. And um, I just started to discover that. The master brewers, the head brewers at these breweries, even the small ones, I mean, are they they scientifically inclined? Do they know the stuff you're talking about? Yes, man. Yes. I they always thought they were ve- kind of, I mean, I, you know, they're kind of beardy guys that no. you know, had big... Uh, a lot big... of biochemists, a lot of chemistry right. majors, a lot wow. of bio majors get into brewing. And then, you know, a lot of adults like me kind of stumble, <laughs> stumble their way into it. But yeah, because... Yeast is this living organism, and and it eats sugars, and let's say it produces, you know, let's, uh, the the crass way of saying it would be that it pisses alcohol, and it right. and it farts like <laughs> carbon dioxide, um, and it also gives off these things called esters, which are these X factors that you want in beer that give it this kind of complexity of flavor and aroma. Like they bring almost as much in in many beers uh, to the beer as hops do on an aroma profile. Um, And they do really weird things with hops where like you'll come in, okay, this hop is like a grapefruity type of hop. But, oh, when it hits the Britannomyces, it turns into some, it turns into mangoes. And like with any other yeast, it'll just stay grapefruity, you know, like so what i what i've realized in the last 2 months is like this yeast be, yeast is magic really and 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 if you can kind of get in there and start to really understand what's happening um you can stumble across your own magic because with the spontaneous stuff you're really stumbling you're not force manufacturing anything you're really opening yourself up to the kind of gods and saying help me out a little bit here <laughs> i want to awesome. i want to get this this version of Britannomyces nobody's had before, and I want it to taste like an elixir. So that's what I'm excited about and working on. I mean, here's here's an, here's one other quick example of what you could do on this kind of local. You can okay. So in France, this concept of terroir is rooted yeah. in what kind of grapes you have on how many year old vines in what kind of dry so- soil in which part of the valley of which 
appellation or whatever it is, right? Whatever that. Yes, name. and you know what's interesting is the part of the valley is really important. Like in in sure. Burgundy, for instance, the the Cote d'Or, you know, they'll, they'll be like right next door to each other and have a totally different taste because there's more sunlight or there's more shading by the mountains, which causes more fog in the morning on this particular uh, vineyard. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So. Um, exactly. So that concept has never really advanced into beer and spontaneous fermentation and beer is the way that it can, where you're like this, this beer was made from yeast gathered in the air on the Sunday morning of the masters in Augusta, Georgia, you know, like get golf geeks to intersect with beer geeks or, you know, like it could be as historical and as specific as you want. And that is like its own kind of claim at, at this terroir concept that beers just flirted with, you know, for the last, you know, geez, for the last hundred years in America at the least. So I think it's the next kind of wild west, and I think it's the end game in, in craft brewing is to actually get to that level of specificity because here's this is a cool thing. I've had a couple conversations with people about where that hyper-local thing is going. It can't get any more local at one point, right? <laughs> like yeah, you exactly. could, It's got to bottom out. It, it gets to the point of like, oh, I know where that thing is from. I know when it's from. Like, that's it. It's an X and Y point on a graph. So that's important to people my age and older and some people younger than us. Um, we're not going to bounce back and be like, Oh, yeah, I want more monoculture now. Like, just give me shit. Like, give me my McDonald's back. Give me shitty monoculture food. And I can't products. imagine we would. I mean, obviously, I hope we would. <laughs> it's can't. I really hope it It doesn't. can't bounce back. The You know, in, unless it gets co-opted by monoculture and monoculture starts saying, okay, come get our burger that's made with, you know, <laughs> emu meat from uh, New Zealand, uh, the North, North Island of New Zealand or whatever it is, right? So they could co-opt it. That's fine. But I don't think it's going to contract. I don't think it's ever going to like just like people worry about the tech, the tech industry bubble popping. There's not going to be a bubble popping on this local authentic thing. It can get more annoying. But well, so here's a here's a question. And this kind of struck me when you were talking about terroir and the different tastes based on the the earth and the location all that you know very high level um especially sommeliers and um master sommeliers have you seen by the way there's a great documentary called um God, it's about taking the master sommelier exam and it's really fascinating how these guys you know there's only very few people that that pass every year like a couple um and it's the master master sommelier and they've got to be able to taste the biggest part of this exam is to be in a room with these other master sommeliers with six or seven glasses of wine and be able to taste it, say not only what grape it is, um, you know, describe it, um, and then start to pinpoint exactly where in the world it was made Amazing. in which region. And they can do that. So they can say, Amazing. this is Burgundy, probably near to Dijon. Um, I'm going to say it's the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they can nail it perfectly. Can that happen in beer? Is it just too, uh, is it too random? I mean, can you, I guess you could taste something and say, okay, that's Cascade hops. Right. That's, uh, I don't know, that's a a Russian 
uh, maybe it's Russian River area or something. Can you do something like that? Or So you, you can. And, and in the 90s, I took this exam. It was called the Beer Judge Certification Program. And I, I became a certified beer judge. And so that's called the, wow. the BJCP. And that's... I don't think you've ever told me that. You, were a, you hold the BJCP license? Wow. I did. You, it's something you have to renew, which, um, you know, I've kind of fell out of interest with it at that time. And so I never renewed it. But it's kind of funny in that I did pass it at one point and I actually feel proud about it now. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that. And because it was actually, it was the hardest test I'd ever taken at that really? point. So, uh-huh. Like I was wow. in my twenties, but it, I studied for that for six months and it was half of it was essay. You had to write. That's exactly what you're talking about. The thing with beer is that it is more simple and you kind of can't get down to that level. You can definitely say, Hey, this is a, these cascade hops were, um, you know, there's too much on the bittering end. There needs to be more on the aroma and floral end. Add them later to the boil. You're more kind of trying to describe a way out of faults that a particular beer might have. And your ultimate goal is to tell how closely it adheres to a defined codified style, a beer style. And so you have to have memorized where the delimiters are between, let's say, an American wild ale and a Belgian spontaneously fermented beer. <laughs> like, um, and, and are the, those going to be blurry? But are those classifications? Aren't they changing? Like what you totally would say Belgian they've, white. I mean, are they kind of? Are they making up new categories as they go? Yes, man. Of? I can't believe it. Like it's all totally changed in the last twenty years. So yeah, there's tons of new categories, and uh, even the Great American Beer Festival, which is this huge thing here that people breweries win medals for, and it's fairly prestigious. They use a different classification system than the Beer Judge wow. Certification Program, and so there's. There's a lot going on with all that, yeah. Well, I was just noticing that I was having a beer the other day, and it was an imperial IPA as opposed to, I guess, a normal IPA. Right. As opposed to a um, there's some Russian something IPA, or I don't know. But it's just, it's amazing. There must be dozens of IPA styles. I mean, I guess that is because that particular style has just exploded in the last couple of years. But, um, yeah, yeah the, I mean, there's there's this thing called a double IPA, which... Um, double IPA, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. For which Pliny the Elder is said to be the, the kind of main example from Russian River. And that was kind of single-handedly invented by this guy, who the Russian River brewer Vinny, and he created this beer. It was before he came up with Pliny, uh, maybe even at a different place um and he was like yeah this is a double this is a double ipa and nobody said that or thought of that or done that before so people are coming up with this shit you know (laughs) like in their in their little bit in their businesses the best creative minds are kind of pushing that forward um the funny you imagine that go ahead ahead. i was gonna say the beer exam that you took has got to be a lot different nowadays right yeah i think it's got to be a lot more well, I wouldn't say more complicated, but it's got, it's got to be a lot of, a lot more, uh, I guess there would be more things to consider. Is that fair? Or do you think that there's more categories to memorize? Or there's do you think definitely there's a different more, approach? There's more styles, but um, I, I, I suspect they focus on the, the basics of things rather than getting kind of lost in the woods of the nitty gritty new stuff, because the basics right. is where, where it all is. Like, 
why does this milk stout taste this certain way and how does it differ from a sweet stout or a dry stout or yeah so they they probably stick with those um kind of tried and true basics i'd imagine you've got to show off the fact that you passed that that's so cool i do well it can get annoying but i i I have done that you know was that in your online dating profile right because if it wasn't if that wasn't the subtitle i don't know I don't know what you're Oh, man. It's, yeah, it, that's a real, like, oh, do you know I was once a certified beer judge? <laughs> yeah. At which date with your wife Fuck. did that come up? Well, that's got to have been in the first few dates, I would have Oh, to God. Lord help us. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Where, okay, so you get back from, you get back from, uh, you know, the Magic Orlando. Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And... You, you're celebrating. Did you celebrate Christmas back in the UK? Were you there for New Year's well, Eve? Well, we did before we left. So, no, we were in Orlando for New Year's Eve. And so we got back here. We still went to sleep. We, we celebrated New Year's Eve in the UK, which meant we it was about 6 p.m., something like that, in Orlando. So we could get to bed early. Because now with a little one, there's no hope of staying up till midnight. It's just right. you pay too much for that. That's just too much pay. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we got back here on the 3rd. And business-wise, we're we're going into a um, a funding round, so looking for funding for our business. Cool. And it is so. I mean, talk about a rabbit hole of just craziness from business plans to investor stuff, and it's just my mind is, is you know, and there's no breaks. Like it's every evening and every weekend, and I, I was just um, I just took a few hours, went to a coffee shop, going over. Yeah, ways to approach different investors. It's just crazy. It's all encompassing. Um, so I don't quite know what I've bitten off. Um, but that's, yeah, another reason I've kind of been out of it for the past few weeks. So but, is this a Series A? Do they call it the same thing? We're, yes, it's similar, although we're pre-Series A. You know, it's funny. The way beer styles have expanded and there have been tons right. of new classifications. You know, there used to be a time when I guess you would have seed rounding kind of to start the company and then you have series a and series b etc because that made sense now there's seed there's seed plus there's post seed there's mezzanine wow which is quite fun. so i like there's that bridge there's bridge <laughs> uh there's pre-series a and then there's series a so we're somewhere between seed and um i don't know probably bridge i don't know which one but it's so funny they got a language that all themselves these guys and you know, I'm trying to read books. I'm stuffing my, my Kindle full of um, books trying to understand all the jargon and nonsense. And I just realized today, I'm thinking, maybe I'm not going to get into the jargon and nonsense. I'm just going to kind of pitch it my way and just be honest and see what happens kind of thing. Hey, that's an approach. I like that approach. We'll see. I mean, you know the podcast Serial, right? I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, we were of talking course, about right. it a few weeks ago. Well, right. So the, the, the producer of that, I forget the woman's name. She used to... Yes. So she used to work with somebody else at This American Life. Yeah, yeah. I know this whole story, right. And he, oh, Gimlet. So Gimlet yeah, yeah. Media? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I just started listening to that startup podcast. I must be the last person in the world who knew about it. Yeah, I told you about uh, it like three months ago. <laughs> did you tell me about it? Yeah, yeah. But that's all right. Right. So it's I'm great, isn't it? to it. It's really good. It's yeah. really good. With one minor problem. I think he, he's starting to get into just talking about everybody else's startup, and I much prefer just the honest his honest opinion about his own. Like, I don't want him to take callers and take opinions. Uh, oh, boy. I, have, I haven't heard those yet. Okay. Yeah. So I think he, he feels that he needs to expand out 
to kind of discuss other people's startups, and that feels like the wrong way. But yeah, it was really interesting listening to that and listening to his early investor pitches and all that kind of stuff. And it was yeah. great those 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 early interviews where he was flailing around so much. It was yeah, exactly. fantastic. So I've been you know kind of enjoying that. Um, I've been thinking about about you at work and and uh, especially the fact that uh, uh, I saw Imitation Game the other day. Oh, I really want to see that. Gosh, uh, everybody at Bletchley Park is so into that film, and 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 tourism has just gone through the roof over at Bletchley Park sure. because of that film. And Did you like it? Was your it office good? is still there, right? Ours is in Block E, which is right wow. next to Hut 6. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and Turing's office is literally 10 feet away from, from our office. So it's, yeah, oh my we're, gosh. We're right there. That's we're so right awesome. There. It's great. I love our address, and I love working there. And it's, honestly, it's the best piece of marketing we ever did. We didn't even intentionally mean to do it. it was I love that. Because we go and we talk to people. In this Eddie, so where Eddie, things. Eddie, hold on. I, I, oh, maybe you're, maybe you're already going to say this, but just like... Just talk it up more, like it. There maybe British yeah. like to be like. Here, here's how you do it. You know, like the lands, the landscape for mobile development is definitely like. Oh, this copycat. Ge- we we're not playing an imitation game here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we name. You know, we've got a, a product out. Um, it's a content management system, and we named the releases after significant Bletchley Park moments. So we did Bomb, wow. which is based on, you know, those machines that were in the imitation game, the spinning dials yeah. and the, the rotor settings. And so the first one was Bomb, and the next one is that's coming out is Colossus, which is based on a later machine. I'm not sure if that would have been in the film. But, um, but yeah, we're trying to play it up as much as possible. But you're right, I should mention it. You know, like in intros, the top of meetings and stuff. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's such are. a great conversation piece. I mean, yeah, that's an, that's an awesome thing. Like, because what happened there, if somebody's just come off seeing that movie, they'll be so into it. And it sounds like there's a there's nothing like a little bit of UK pride. Like, that yeah, goes really true. a long way, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And the film was good? You liked it? It, yes, I did like it. The funny thing is, uh, also saw the theory of everything, the Stephen Hawking film. Yeah, and so their two kind of their two biopics, let's say, bleed into this one kind of super smart English person biopic in my mind. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Gotcha. But Turing, Turing, and both are really well played by the actors. And Turing is a definitely a. F- fascinating kind of character um you've met those hyper brilliant people who just kind of can't do much else before yeah and just can't you know socially or just have trouble even talking and things yeah yeah uh but yeah we we've been on the the kind of annual pre-oscar binge here at the house so there's there's honestly not many things we haven't seen in the last six weeks, which is just kind of the, the nature of how we roll. Are you the watching holidays. those at home? Are you torrenting them or something? Oh, uh, I don't know you how we're DVD doing screeners? it. Screeners? I, I don't know how we're doing it, but uh... <laughs> but you're watching them at home. That's the answer to the question. You watch them at home because I want to see the imitation game, and I just I can't watch it till you know you we can watch it at home theater. after the baby. Yeah, after the baby's asleep. Yeah. But I've been trying to torrent it. I keep getting lousy torrents for it. <laughs> um, oh, that's too bad. They're yeah. um. 
They're definitely out. They're uh, okay. definitely out okay. there. I keep downloading things that will, it'll start playing, and then they'll say, to get the key to unlock oh, that's this horrible. video, go to this. Oh, it's the worst. You just want to kill yourself, because you've been downloading it all day, and you've been so excited. It finally ends. 1.9 gigs. There's a friend of mine who's really into torrents, and uh, I'll talk to him about it for you. Oh, I think. Thank so you. I'll have yeah, him, I'll links, him hook you greatly up. Appreciate it. Somebody's got to put together an Oscar list torrent. Index. Well, okay, so that's exactly what exists. Um, really? So there's this guy whose work I really enjoy. He he like uh, creates this. Um, what do you call it? Some kind of conference for indie developers and workers in Portland every other year or something, which I have not been to. But he does a lot of really great web projects and seems to have an affinity for my work from time to time, which I appreciate. Anyways, every year he puts together a list of Oscar uh, pictures that have been nominated for an Oscar, right? It could just be for cinematography. And then he'll get the dates of when that screener was leaked online. And then he'll do a lot of data uh, analysis about were these screeners uh, released faster than last year or quicker to the release date of the movie than ever before? Were the first torrents that came out cam versions of the movie? You know, so it's just data about the piracy surrounding a certain movie. Yeah, it's great. I'll send you the link. I'll put it in the show notes. Put it in the show notes. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's Sel- Selma. It's so funny. Like, I was really wrapped up in Selma and probably failed to see a few of its flaws. But that movie's fucking good. I haven't even heard of it. Oh, it's a, it's this MLK MLK movie about... The oh, movie. it's not out here. I've not, I've not yeah. heard of it. The March from Selma to Montgomery, and it's made by an African-American woman director, which is super rare, and uh, she got snubbed for an Oscar nomination. The guy who plays MLK is this, uh, I I, want to say he's African-born, but he's a British actor, David Oyelowo, and he is amazing. Really? And the best part, honestly is the cinematography is I think he's another African-American kid like he's young and he's maybe only done three or four movies small movies but the, but the cinematography is awesome he like does an awesome job with the camera in that film it's probably the thing I enjoyed about it most check this out here's one crazy point about this film there's a lot of great stories about the making of it and what's happening with it and the people behind it how it got made it's just fascination all around. Um, but check this out. There, He gives speeches. MLK gives speeches, of course, in the movie. And they couldn't use his words from actual speeches. Why? Because the family, MLK's family, had sold the rights to those words oh. used in a movie, like, years ago, to somebody who's never made the movie. So that's crazy that a family could sell things and the mlk family is notoriously crazy and uh, or notoriously litigious and weird and fighting with each other and they're all here in atlanta so there's this atlanta story to how messed up the king family is which is a total american tragedy i think all the siblings fighting with each other all squabbling over his bible over his papers over money it's ridiculous 
Anyways. Wow, I didn't know that. So if you can't get the um, words for him to use in a speech, what do you do when he has to have a speech? You have to write him a speech. And I think the director wrote... She, yeah, she wrote these speeches, kind of using wow. ideas that he'd expressed, like, well, wait, what does this speech in reality, what is he trying to say? And then kind of working backward from there and, like, having him speak in a way that was very, let's say, MLK Jr.-like and awesome and inspirational and something the actor could really get into. And you never notice that this is something that MLK never said. Like it's wow, it, that's wow. really awesome and an, an intense kind of creative act. I think that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I really want to see it. I'm just looking at it online here. Yeah, I haven't heard about it at all. So yeah, that's great. And you've you know what you got to do though. You know what needs to be number one on your list to see from this year is Boyhood, the Richard Linkletter film. I've not heard of that either. Dude, you got to get that. It's it was film, okay. filmed over twelve years, and it follows wow, a kid okay. from seventeen, seven years old to nineteen. It's the wow. same actors. It's with wow. your friend Ethan Hawke. Oh God, Patricia okay Arquette. In it so right. check this out. Last night, I took Allison out for um, birthday dinner. We drove to Athens, which is like oh, an nice. hour and a half away. And it's just far enough away to feel like you're far enough away. You know, it's like yeah. you just got away for the evening. And it's a country drive out there, you know, in the middle of the night. So it's really like kind of a nice thing. <laughs> On the way home, I was like, okay, let's listen to some podcasty stuff. And we listened to Patricia Arquette, who's in Boyhood, and Ethan Hawke talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And the minute Ethan Hawke starts talking, it's like, Oh, like you just... that doesn't does your yeah. It just is so cringeworthy, isn't it? Because it's, it's so, so premeditated. Everything that He's comes like, out. Yeah, Terry. Well, yeah. <laughs> here's what I'm thinking as a tortured artist who really is so has a deep man's voice. Because I've lived a lot of life now, and I'll tell you. Yeah. What did it's he all refer about. to his poetry at any point? Did he <laughs> talk about his readings that are coming up? And, all right, let me roll this back. I remember that your dis dislike for Ethan Hawke definitely far outweighed mine, and I feel like it was rooted in the fact that maybe at the time you were dating a woman who'd bought his book and said it was yes, really good. Yes, is that so true? I well, yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. I was trying for what we were together five years, maybe, and probably for four of those five years. You know, I, I was reading some, you know, lots of different poetry and trying to even scribble some of my own. She was interested in none of it. And then all of a sudden, Ethan Hawke produces a, a work of poetry. She buys the book and just gets totally into it. She's oh. like, poetry's great. And I'm like, I just hate him. Oh, that's him. so great. That's so 20s, man. That's such a great memory of how things and little things about relationships work in your 20s. That's just such yeah, a good story. I know. Oh, God, you're right. That one guy just still, oh, just kills me, kills me. All right, tell me this. Uh, if we're to talk, let's say, next Sunday, and who knows if we will or not, but what, are, do you have your big funding deadline, like, in the next couple of weeks here? No, no, it, it's it's an open thing. In fact, we've just started. So okay. There's a really a deadline, but in the next, oh yeah, we're getting serious now, so we're starting the meetings and things. So, you know, w it could be several months at least. So we'll see. We'll I see have, where it goes. I have, um, I think yesterday, 
yesterday or maybe two or three days ago. I know I spent a lot of time today telling you about this wild fermentation idea that I have. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Which um, there's some potential there. But I also have an idea for a technology product um, that I think could have impact, legs, revenue stream, all of that. And, wow, okay. And so maybe we, we'll talk about that next time. I'll keep uh, – I'll keep working on it in my mind and see if I can get it to a level of a, I'll make a, you know, semi-informal pitch to you about it next time we talk. Do it. Yeah, I'd love that. That's a great um, that's a great thing for the next talk, definitely. <laughs> and I'll give you an update on what we're doing. So, uh, yeah, I got to go wrangle the girl. Uh, I have, me too. Uh, me too. Yeah. Girl on this end as well. Frozen is just ending. I'm, I can kind of hear it in the background. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, uh, good chat as always. Uh, have a good Sunday. And you've got the day off tomorrow there, don't you? No, I'm not given the day off, but you know what? Oh. I took the day off, so I'm taking it good. off. Yeah. Thank you. you work, I thought it was a national holiday, though. You know, it is for the businesses who decide they want to, they want to, uh, they want that. And uh, Oh, it's discretionary. Yeah, it's discretionary. So our business, we, we are two people, a two-person office, and, and I had to ask... Uh, ask uh i guess it's so funny you call her my boss she's my boss though so i had to ask my boss hey were you taking monday off no no and you know i've had a lot of good time off over the holidays so i'm not complaining about that um but yeah it's it's not something that everybody does oh interesting and no, if no. you work in corporate america and there's um let's say a few african-american people in the office some businesses will say, hey, we're all taking President's Day off, but if you want MLK Day off, you can do that instead, <laughs> wow, which is okay. which is really tactful. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm speaking secondhand about this, of course, but um, that's how yeah. some people choose to handle it in America, I guess. Right. Right. I just thought it was a national holiday. Everybody closed. No, no. Hopefully someday, uh, man. I mean, do uh, you remember how... In Arizona, like under John McCain, people were trying to get rid of the MLK holiday there. No, no, I don't. I Ten don't or fifteen years that. ago. Anyways, no. that's a that's another day. We got to run. Jeez. All right, buddy. Take care. <laughs> I'll send great. you uh, the file tomorrow. Take care, buddy. All right, see you.